May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Only a great fool would think themselves qualified to lead a great people. And Solomon was nobody's fool. If you've ever heard stories about Solomon, perhaps they were stories about how he was the wisest king who ever lived. His wisdom was beyond measure and without comparison. And if you hadn't heard stories about his wisdom, then perhaps you heard stories about how Solomon had an eye for the ladies as well. Seems he had more than a thousand wives. Yeah, I know, right? I mean, if ever there was a paradox, it was this. That he is the wisest man who ever lived and yet had a thousand wives. Can you imagine hearing, Honey, my mother's coming for a visit a thousand times. Or, I'll stop treating you like a child when you stop acting like one a thousand times. Or whatever it is ancient Israeli women might have said to their husbands. Even a baseball team only has five starting pitchers. You know that they rotate. And yet here is Solomon with a thousand wives. The issue, of course, is that in the ancient world, um, kings would take wives from other nations, as we find in the very beginning of this passage, as a way of forging alliances with other kings. You know, it wouldn't be likely that a a king from another country would invade and, and attack your country if his daughter was living in the palace. And so there was a way in which you would use um, marriage uh, relationships to form alliances, but also there was a sense in which among your own countrymen, men would have these many wives as a way of demonstrating their power, their, their influence over the rest of the culture. Solomon having a thousand wives makes him a thousand times more powerful than this, the ordinary man who lives in Israel. But still, a thousand. I mean, this is a harem beyond comparison, even in the ancient world. It is a way of Solomon sort of doing something and and taking it beyond the, the normal and reasonable levels. And if you're a careful reader of the book of Kings... You'll notice a little, a little change happens from, uh, from one chapter to a few later. In chapter 3, verse 3, our, our lesson today, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David, his father. But then you flip over a few pages to chapter 11, and here's what you hear. Now Solomon loved many foreign women. Solomon loved the Lord in chapter 3. And in chapter 11, now Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they marry you, for surely they will turn your heart after their gods. Solomon, the writer said, clung to these women in love. He is obviously a conflicted man. And yet he is God's man, God's man to lead Israel after the death of David, his father. You know that David was the second king of Israel. The first king, Saul, had started strong. He had real promise from the beginning. He had this passion and fervor to serve the Lord. The writer of uh, of 1 Samuel says that the spirit of the Lord came upon Saul and that he was able to to go out and vanquish many of the enemies uh, of Israel in, in in the land. He had a strong future, much promise. 
But his end was as ignoble as it was inglorious. Saul was destroyed. Remembered you know, without, without warmth or, or without any sort of, of admiration. And that opened the door for David to enter in and become the second king, the second monarch of Israel, of Israel. And maybe you know something of David's story too. David the shepherd boy turned warrior, turned mercenary, became the people's champion and ultimately becomes the king of Israel. That David did what Saul could not. He vanquished Israel's foes. He destroyed their enemies. And um, he was able to establish Zion in Jerusalem, the city of God. The, the city of, of, of Israel where, where a unified monarchy was to reside. And the way he brought together this loosely confederated uh, gathering of, of tribes into a, a single nation. Beyond that, there were some real benefits to what David did. His military might, his organizational skill brought about an economic boom in Israel such that the the, the federal coffers were overflowing. People had food in their homes. Crops were doing well. Borders were extended. I mean, it was a great and golden time in Israel. But you know there's a middle bit in David's life too, don't you? There's a little, there's a story that happens in the middle that's not so nice, not so pleasant. Seems that while everything was going well, David one night is out walking around on the balcony, sees a lovely young woman in a hot tub and invites her over. Enters into an affair with her, and when she becomes pregnant, he has to try to kind of cover his tracks. So he invites the, the, the woman's husband back home. He's, he's a captain in the military. He brings him back home on furlough. Thinks, I'll just cover this up. Only he hadn't counted on the fact that the captain was a man of integrity. The captain says, you know, I have no business cuddling with my wife while my men are out there on the, on the front lines. And so David feels like he has no choice. He has the man murdered. He makes it look like an accident, tries to cover it up. He ends up marrying the captain's widow, wants to be an honorable person in that way. But the story is a difficult story, the story of David, an adulterer and a murderer. And we know that. We, the reader, know the whole story about David. But here's what happened with David. Here's the rest of the story that David confessed. That he had true contrition, true repentance. He openly acknowledged it before God. He rejected his sin. And he realized that his sin was really a result of him ultimately rejecting God in his life. And about nothing else. David's story is not one of perfection. It is a story of redemption. He owned his mistake, he returned to the Lord, and he found grace and forgiveness. So while Saul is remembered in disgrace, David is remembered with joy. Here's the thing, they both started out well. If you read the stories of David and Saul, you realize that they both started out well. They both made poor choices along the way. They both sinned. But here's the difference with David, is he returned. To the Lord. He admitted his sin. He confessed it. He repented. And he came back to the Lord. And he finished well. The lesson today brings us to Solomon. King number three. Just shortly here after the inauguration. And here's what we have. Solomon loved the Lord. Walking in the statutes of David his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. Here's Solomon's sort of um, beginning place. 
He loved the Lord. I mean, this is really good, isn't it? He loves the Lord. This is a heartfelt warmth and affection for God. This is genuine piety. True love for religion. Solomon loved the Lord. He put the Lord first in his life. It's not faint praise. This is high praise by the writer of the book of Kings. What's more, he walked in the statutes of David his father. Now you know that walking doesn't mean walking, right? It's not literally that he walked the way that David walked. He wasn't bow-legged like his dad or he didn't walk in the same places. He lived the same way that his father lived. He was ethical in his dealings with people. He was just and right and honest and good and decent and all of those things. He followed the Ten Commandments, made them his guiding principle for life. Only one thing, only one thing. He sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. Did you see that in the, in the text? Only he, there's, except, save for the fact that he made these offerings. Perhaps you remember that in the Old Testament, before the building of the temple in Jerusalem, the people of God were supposed to worship in one place. And that was at the tabernacle, wherever it had, it was a moving tent. It, not literally moving, people could move it. It was, it was transportable, mobile. They could move it, and, it, and the priests would take it down, and they would move it to wherever the Lord had told them. And that's where they would set it up, and that's where you worship. This is the one place. But before Israel ever lived in the land, there were people who used to worship their other gods, the pagans used to worship on the mountaintops all around. And Solomon, like a lot of the people, kind of liked that. They sort of mixed their worship of Yahweh with sort of the pagan practices of the past. They kind of became like the people in a lot of the ways in going up there. And Solomon is in one of those places when he falls asleep and he has a dream in our passage today. And that's when God comes to him and says to Solomon, what would you like me to do for you? I mean, this is like a genie in a bottle, isn't it, really? I mean, Solomon, name it. What do you want? Have you ever thought about that? If you had one wish to make what you would wish for? I remember when my boys were little, um, they used to always wish that they could, if they had one wish, they would just, you know, sit in back of the car on a long trip or whatever. What would you wish for? Uh, and one of them would ultimately say, I wish I had a Walmart store. Because it has all the food and bicycles and toys and ball gloves. And you could just live in there for a really long time and never run out of good things to eat or stuff to do. We didn't live very large lives. You know, and so this is what you'd, if you had one wish, what would you wish for? Solomon's a, he's a thinker. He's a wise person. He knows that money is not the answer. I suppose that's why a lot of people play a lottery, don't they? You know, like, if I could just, man, that's all I need. I'd have the wish I really want. I thought about how money doesn't really solve many of the wishes that a lot of people would have. Go down to Akron, the children's hospital. You know, go up into the cancer wards. Um, Talk to the parents of a four-year-old with leukemia. And they will not wish for money. I guarantee you that. Because money doesn't solve their problem, does it? In fact, it's not even close to being what they really need. I mean, go, um, go to some civilian homes in places where war is going on right now. Go to the Sudan. Go to Israel or Gaza. Go to eastern Ukraine. Places where bombs are going off. 
where men with machine guns are walking up and down the street and ask them, is money the really thing that you need? And they will tell you that money won't buy peace or security. That there are a lot of things that you could wish for, and Solomon knows this, doesn't he? He does not wish for riches. He doesn't even wish for his own safety or well-being. Instead, in humility, what does he say? Verse 7. And now, O Lord God, you have made your servant, me, king in place of of David, my father. Although I am a little child. He is not a little child. He's a grown man. He's an adult when when he says this. But he feels like a little child. Doesn't he? He feels like he is, he is in way over his head. I do not know how to go in or to come out. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm in over my head in this thing. I'm the king over all of these people. And their lives, they depend upon my decision making. I wonder, could you imagine in the next presidential debate, I mean, it's going to come up here pretty soon, if somebody's at the podium and the moderator asks the question, um, you know, uh, so, sir or madam, what would you do on your first day in office? Could you imagine them saying, I'm going to fall on the floor and say, I don't know what I'm doing, I'm in over my head. They'll never say that, will they? Sir or madam, what are you going to do on your first day in office? Well, whatever, Bob, I'm going to... um, do what I did as my term in governor. You'll remember all the programs that I instituted in my state. Or I'm going to do what we did in Congress in passing these laws. I'm going to... You can trust me to answer the phone in the middle of the night. You know, they'll say something like that. Or, you know, whatever they'll say. My first 100 days, my executive orders. My, my, my. I'm ready for this job. <laughs> and that's what we want to hear, don't we? We don't want to hear somebody say, I'm in over my head. Solomon's the wisest king who ever lived. And he knew he was in over his head. And he was humble, real humility. I don't know what to do. I'm not ready for this job. Verse 10, and it pleased the Lord that Solomon had said this. Solomon's humility was pleasing to God. He's right. He's not up to the job. Solomon had answered well that question. And it pleased the Lord that he had answered so well. Solomon, man, Solomon is off to a good start, isn't he? As a king, he is off to a good start. You know, in the Boisel household, um, we don't grow people very tall um, or particularly handsome or um, smart or any of those sorts of things, but we do grow them fast. You know, um, every, you know, back in the day, I was a pretty quick sprinter. And my boys, you know, they're pretty quick too. You know, they, they, can, they can, you see them run bases. In, in baseball, base stealers, great base stealers, these boys. Just get them on. That's all we need to do is get them on the base and, boy, they're around there. They know that there takes two things to be a great base stealer. One is you've got to be fast. And the second thing is you need a really good start. You need to get a good lead, get way off that bag, and then you can take off and go. Solomon's off to a very, very good start. But I remember another story. Maybe you remember it too. My mother used to tell me when I was a child. It was a story about a race between a tortoise and a hare. Did your mother tell you this story? 
You remember the story of how this rabbit so fast and quick was going to race this turtle so slow and plodding? And here they go. They get up to the start. The, the, the finish a foregone conclusion, isn't it, when they start the race? But the starter fires the pistol, and off they go. And the rabbit, he's gone. He leaves the tortoise in his dust. He's so far ahead. In fact, he's so far ahead, the rabbit looks back and says, you know, I can take a rest. You know, and it's gonna, I, I'm, I'm going to win this thing by so much, I can just relax. I'll sit down by this tree, and I'll take me a little nap. I mean, I've got plenty of time. But the sleep is so heavy that he can't quite rouse himself from it. And the little slow tortoise goes right by. And he crosses the finish line before the rabbit ever knew what happened. The moral of the story, of course, is it's not so important how you start a race. It's how you finish it. And there's a little passage in verse 14. The Lord says to Solomon, And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. Perhaps we would paraphrase it like this. Good start, Solomon. Now, if you live right, you'll finish strong, too. And that's what really matters. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.